0: Thank you, Les and Katie. Uh, We turn to Romans 16 today. We're going to see that uh, doctrine matters. The passage before us, we're going to look at it, really covers four verses, but we only have time to look at two today. So I'm... Only planning on looking at verses 16, uh, 17 and 18 on the issue that, that doctrine really does matter. How important, after all, is doctrine? That doctrine is seen as something that is not all that exciting for a lot of people. In fact, many people think that doctrine is one of the reasons we have problems in churches. People debating over different issues and so forth and why can't we all just get along and be tolerant of each other's view and accept one another and just say, well, I love God, you love God? Yes, and then we're all okay. There have been attempts through the years to have a reductionist kind of theology, a minimalist doctrine, that is to try to narrow things down to the smallest component it can be. And within the evangelical circles, that reductionist doctrine has come down to a statement, something like this, no creed but Christ. That is the only thing that matters is Christ. The, interesting, the song that was just sung, Just Give Me Jesus. And uh, that is, in the way that the song was presenting, it's certainly a, a true statement, and uh, statement of our, He is our all in all, our total sufficiency in Christ. But what happens is, when we start thinking in terms of doctrine like no creed but Christ, we, we find that we soon run into some issues. It sounds really good at the beginning. That is, no, no creed, no statement of faith, that means. No doctrinal statement other than Christ. I mean, didn't Paul say to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I came not wanting to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? Right? So you can see how some people would come up with this kind of a statement. And uh, there's no creed, but Christ has been around for about 150 years. It, it recycles itself every 30 years or so. We, we see it again and again. I see it coming back. But here's the problem with that. Let's say we were to say that we as a congregation were to agree with this. We're going to have no creed. There is no statement of faith, no doctrine, nothing else that we're going to say about ourselves. No creed, but Christ. Okay. Who is Christ? Was He really God? Is He part of a trinity? Now you have to come up with a trinitarian statement about who Christ is. Is He eternal? Well, what does that have to say about Him if He's God Then. All the things you say about God, you understand the doctrine of God, the eternality of God, the omnipotence of God, the holiness of God, and all the things that have to do with God. A whole, whole bunch of theology goes into that if He is God. What would you say about his birth? No creed but Christ. OK? What, how was he born? Was it When do you shave? You woke up and it was gone. You don't know a lady named Delilah, do you? Okay. When you, when you start thinking about the person of Christ and his, his birth, his life, did he live a sinless life? Yes. Did, how about his death? Was it just a normal death, or was it a vicarious, sacrificial death? And Jesus said that He would build His church, and so then we get into the area of uh, ecclesiology, another area of doctrine. Jesus said He was coming back again, that's eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. And you see, once you say, you believe in Christ, then... You have to believe everything this book says about him and how he relates to God the Father, how he relates to us, and before long you have a whole bunch of doctrine. So it isn't as simple as just saying no creed but Christ because we need to know everything there is about him. Uh, Bad doctrine unites people. Good doctrine unites the church. There have been schisms and divisions and so forth uh, all through church history. But what happens is when bad doctrine tends to unite people, people will gather around bad doctrine because it says something they want to hear or says it in a way that they want to believe it. Bad doctrine will unite people, but good doctrine unites the church. The church stands on the Word of God, and good doctrine. And so doctrine matters. So we come here to Romans 16. Look at verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Since doctrine matters, what should we do about doctrinally divisive people. Paul says two things in verse 17. Avoid, uh, note them and then avoid them. Note those who do that and avoid them. That's what you do with them. To note them means different translations uh, translate like this. Note them or mark them, like mark them out. Watch out for them probably the closest is keep an eye on them. Make note of them, keep an eye on them. In fact, it translates the Greek word skopos, which is where we get our word telescope or microscope. That's that skopos word. And so skopos meant to not only look or see, but to look intently. As, in, as you would with a microscope or telescope. You're not just giving a passing glance at something with a microscope. You are zeroing in on something and looking very intently at it. Or with a telescope, you're looking at something far away so you can, you can see it better, clearer. So it's to look at something very intently, very closely. Note them. In that way. And in noting them, there are two things he says that we we need to check as we are looking very closely. First of all, check their doctrine and then check their fruit. Verse 17 Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned. Well, that means you have to know doctrine if you're going to do this. If you're going to look very closely and intently and purposefully to check their doctrine to see if it's contrary to what you have learned, then that means you have to know doctrine and you have to know it well. Now, For the main part, I think, the people to whom Paul is writing here, they have learned correct doctrine. We get at least a hint of that in the previous chapter. Look at uh, Romans 15, verses 14 and 15. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, also able to admonish one another or to counsel one another. So they're already trained, wise in the Scriptures. No doctrine can teach it to one another. Verse, Verse 15, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Paul is not... Tell it, saying, this is all new stuff to you. He's saying, I know that you know these things, but I am reminding you. So they have already been taught. We don't know by whom. Paul did not establish this church at Rome, um, but people who had been in other places, like uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, were now at Rome, and Paul had taught them not only the previous training that they have, but all the... That they have learned through this book of Romans up to this point, that they now have as, as doctrine, they have learned good doctrine. And they are able even to admonish, counsel, instruct one another. Now, can that be said about you? Do you know doctrine? Are you able also to admonish one another? Are you able to check someone else's doctrine to see if it's contrary to that doctrine which you have learned? Well, what is doctrine? It's also, that same word is also translated often as teaching, meaning the body of truth that has been taught. The teaching you received or the body of truth that you have been taught. That is doctrine. Doctrine. Doctrine is what the Scriptures teach us about God in our relationship to Him. And so we go to the Scriptures to get doctrine. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all of Scripture is God-breathed, given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for four noteworthy things. And it is, all Scripture is profitable for Doctrine. That's how we learn about God and how we relate to Him. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished unto every good work, so that you know the right things, so that you live the right things. And all Scripture is is given by God-breathed, profitable for doctrine. This doctrine teaches you the right way to walk towards godliness. It teaches you about God and how to live for Him. So it's doctrine teaches you the right way to live. It's also good for reproof. Well, what happens if you get off that trail? You, you veer from the path. Then the Scriptures is good for reproof. It brings you back. It's good for correction. How to correct your errors and stay on the path and for training in righteousness, how to keep going towards godliness. The scriptures teach us doctrine. Another general term for doctrine is theology. They're, they're interchangeable words doctrine, theology. What is theology? Theos. Logos. Theology. Well, you know, you're used to the word ology from like biology, study of life and so forth. So it's the study of theos. Theology is the study of God. And there could be no greater subject that we could ever study than God himself. And he is an inexhaustible subject. You can never fully know Him. And the more you seek to know Him, the, the more blessed you will be and the richer your spiritual life will be as you seek to know Him. The study of theology is foremost a study about God and how he, we relate to Him. Having right doctrine leads to right living orthodoxy, right, doctrine, leads to orthopraxy, right, practice, right, living. We see that over and over again in the Bible. So doctrine is important. You need to know doctrine. Now, many people come to this book looking for anthropology instead of theology. You Know what I mean by that? Anthropology is the study of man. They want to know in coming to this book, what does this book say about not God, but me? What is this how is this book going to help me have a better marriage? How is this book going to help me have a better family life? Be more successful in business? Learn how to use my finances better. How is this book going to help me have victory over anxiety and insecurity? How is this book going to help me deal deal with my fears? How is it going to teach me how to have joy? How is it going to teach me you just fill in the blank. And people come to this book looking for answers for themselves. I want to know more about me and my life. and That's not what the book is for. This book is to teach you about the glory and greatness of our God. But Here's a secret. When you desire Him. When you seek that, when you come to this book looking for God and for His glory, you start learning how to live a life that will answer your questions about how to be in a right marriage relationship or family or how to have joy or how to have victory over anxiety and fear and how to have those things start coming as a consequence of looking for God, wanting to study Him. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all those other things will be added to you. You See, that's the secret. You seek first God, His kingdom, His righteousness. And then you get the other things too. If you turn it around and you think, I need I want to seek the things that are of a concern for me first and hopefully in that find God, you'll find neither. It will not make sense to you. What does this mean to live this way as a husband and I don't like that one and or that one or it won't make sense to you. Because God is not first. If you don't seek Him first, the other stuff is not going to make sense and you will not have the inner strength to be able to live it anyways. Seek Him first. What's the first and the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first thing we need to do. And our first desire in coming to this book is to do that, to learn to love Him completely. And the thing is, when we come to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we we come to understand the other things in life as well. So where do you go for theological training? If If you want to know God more, then... How can you? Well, I have put on the back of your outline a list of some books, um, <clears throat> some some helpful books on doctrine and theology. There were a lot more that uh, we could have listed. I asked Pastor Jeremy for for his recommendations of some, and <clears throat> I'd hope to have give you ten. I couldn't narrow it down to ten, so I decided to go with twelve and couldn't narrow it down to 12 and i held myself to 15 as a good even number but and these are so this is not an exhaustive list but just to get you started on some areas of doctrine first of all the bible is that's where you go for doctrine um it's fine to go to a bookstore and look for books on doctrine, but if you haven't already really immersed yourself in this, you, you've forgotten the, the uh, original source. The most reliable source of all doctrine is this book. Get to know this book. And uh, I put a space between number one and number two because the Bible is in a class all by itself. It is infallible, inerrant, powerful Word of God. It is not only truth, but God will use it powerfully in your life. Now, God has also given us uh, men and women who can communicate uh, something about the Word of God, and, and here are some. They, these are not listed in any order of priority. Uh, Systematic Theology, that's the big blue book that we went through with our Tough Men training. Uh, then uh, there's a smaller version of that by Wayne Grudem, Basic Bible Doctrines, which is a good one to have. Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie, uh, still a, a good source. Dug Down Deep is a newer book on theology that uh, Joshua Harris has come out with. Um, an excellent book, very, uh, very well written and... Uh, Uh, interactive one of my favorite all time books number six knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer short chapters on the doctrine of God who God is and I I can only even though they're short chapters I can only take in one chapter at a time because invariably it drives me to my knees each chapter it's that powerful the knowledge of the holy another similar kind of book by J.I. Packer a little bit more detailed is Knowing God a newer book out that's really good on uh, the person of Christ is Putting Jesus in His Place uh, then Vital Christological, Christological Issues uh, by, edit, edited by Roy Zuck a uh, former professor of mine and uh, these are each chapter is written by a different person, each looking at different issues to the person and life and death and resurrection of Christ, that kind of thing. So very good on the life, who Christ is. These next two are both by John MacArthur, and they're excellent for having theological discernment and, and practical discernment in life. If you really want to know how to tell truth from error. These two books are really good for this Fool's Gold because things look good sometimes on the outside but they're really not. It's not what it seems to be. And The Truth War both by John MacArthur. Understanding Scripture edited by Wayne Grudem and and others on the doctrine of the Bible. Uh, Also Sola Scriptura which means only Scripture. Um, Another good book on the doctrine of Scripture. After Darkness Light. Light a uh, book edited by R.C. Sproul Jr., it's R.C. Sproul's son who edited the book. It's a great book on the uh, doctrines of grace. It's a really, really well done book. Again, each chapter by a different expert in that, that field of that, After Darkness Light. That was, by the way, the, uh, a um, um, slogan of the Reformation era, that after all these years of darkness and the Reformation dawned then there was light and the Bible started to be printed in people's language and so forth and God was bringing light of his word again so after darkness light and then finally the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul so these are just some starter books I wouldn't try to read all of them at the same time but you might uh, keep this list and um We have some of these in our library, some in our bookstore. A lot of them you can get at a bookstore. I would go to uh, Christian Book Distributors, CBD.com, Christian Book Distributors. They usually have really good prices, or Amazon. But these are just some resources for you so that you you can know doctrine. You need to know doctrine for yourself to live rightly, but also, if you are going to be able to do this, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned that presupposes you have learned doctrine. So the first thing is note them, check their doctrine, and then uh, compare, uh, you have to know doctrine and you have to compare their doctrine to see if it's contrary to doctrine. Um, Titus one nine through sixteen we won't take time to look at today just for time's sake but that show that passage shows you why it is so important to compare doctrine then check their fruit um, who cause divisions and offenses it's not just that you know somebody has a difference of opinion that's going to happen isn't it we might have a difference of opinion about some things but or some people might be untaught, or we ourselves might be untaught about something. But here's the problem, is the fruit of it is they cause divisions and offenses. And the word offenses is a, to cause a stumbling block or hindrance, an obstacle to someone's faith. So what Paul is talking about here is not just people who don't know doctrine and need to learn for those kind of people, we we want to help them, encourage them, teach them, and so forth. It's not just people who have, maybe in a previous church or something, have learned wrong doctrine and and uh, just need to be taught. With, with those, we we want to also encourage and teach. And I think of Aquila and Priscilla when they heard Apollo uh, Apollo's teaching. Uh, and they realized that he didn't have the whole truth, he only knew the gospel up to the baptism of John, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they didn't lamb blast him in front of the congregation, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of truth more accurately. And so, for those kinds of people we treat like that, but for people that Paul's talking about here people who are entrenched in wrong doctrine and insistent on teaching wrong doctrine, even though it is divisive and causing people to stumble in their faith. To those people, if that's their fruit, they're causing people to stumble in their faith, then you not only note them, but you avoid them. Well, why should we avoid them? Well, if... um, they have wrong doctrine, then they might well have a wrong Lord. And they're certainly going in the wrong direction. Their goal is not your good or God's glory. We'll talk more about why to avoid them in the next verse, but let's go on to the next question. Well, is that loving? Is it a loving thing if if someone in the church has a different doctrine and they are leading other people astray. I mean, who are you or who am I to, say, note them and avoid them? Is that really the loving thing to do? Shouldn't we just accept everyone wherever they are and whatever they're doing? Well, if, if you had a neighbor, a new neighbor move in near you, who, who came over and wanted to teach your children that your children no longer had to obey you. That, you know, your parents are old-fashioned. That's the way it used to be, but in these more modern, postmodern modern days, uh, that's not fashionable or necessary anymore. You don't really need to obey your parents. Now, maybe you would talk to this person, but they're... They're entrenched in this view. They're convinced that's the right view. Now, would you invite them to come over and teach your children again? Or perhaps you might even say, point them out to your children. You see the Joneses over there? Avoid them. Is that a loving thing to do? If you love your children, it's a loving thing to do and in the church family because we love one another and especially our little brothers and sisters in Christ who may be impressionable. It's the loving thing to do. It's also not loving to allow someone to continue in wrong doctrine. That's not good for them. That's not loving for them. 1 Corinthians thirteen six 6 chapter on love 1 Corinthians 16 verse 6 Paul says love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth love rejoices in the truth well what about defending truth shouldn't we seek to defend the truth if there's difference of doctrines well, some people, as I mentioned earlier, you can teach and encourage to grow. If, if that's where they are, they're open to being taught, and sure, you can teach them. Um, others you may need to be confronted and challenged and may respond to that. But there are some, like these mentioned in these verses, who are seeking to destroy the faith of others who cause divisions and offenses, stumbling blocks, contrary to true doctrine, that we must avoid. The Bible doesn't say to debate such people or dialogue with them, but to avoid them, to stay away from them. Now, if you were a shepherd and you were guarding some sheep and a wolf was sneaking in to take some of the sheep, you wouldn't stop and discuss with the wolf recipes for lamb chops. Right? I mean, that wouldn't be part of it. You would stay away. John MacArthur wrote on this verse, Paul often debated with unbelievers, both Jew and Gentile, including Greek philosophers in Acts 17, He did not, however, provide a platform for those who professed Christ, but taught a false and perverted gospel. Such people are not to be debated, but denounced. Well, now to explore this a little bit more in verse 18, why should we avoid doctrinally divisive people? Verse 18 For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Verse starts with the word for, which is explanatory, explaining why, avoiding them in verse 17. Why do that? And he gives these reasons. Because they are idolaters and because they are destructive deceivers. First of all, they are idolaters. I love the way the New American Standard translates this. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They are not slaves of Christ. They they don't belong to Him. They're not His people, His, his possession, His slaves. And I... I've heard it said, and I think it's true, that every cult can be recognized by one single question. What do they say about Christ? Every cult, if you press them on that question, that's where you'll find their Achilles heel. What do they say about Christ? There are a lot of people who claim to be Christian who really have no relationship with him. There are a lot of people who even want to serve Christ, but only in an advisory capacity. There are a lot of people who like the term, the name, Christ, but would uh, be repelled by being called a disciple. If you ask them, are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, when Barna and these other people do these surveys and count how many people are Christians, well, there's a surprising lot, of number of Christians out there who have nothing to do with Christ. If the question was rephrased, I think, by Barna, whoever, are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a slave of Christ? A lot of hands would go down. Because they are not slaves of Christ. Are you? Would you consider yourself a slave of Christ? We have the privilege of being both children, sons and daughters, and slaves of Christ. And both of those titles, both of those ideas are precious in their own right. They are idolaters because they are slaves of their own appetites. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And I think that's a really good way to translate this word bellies. Instead of bellies, it's their appetites, the things that they really, really want in life. This is invariably the case of all who are not slaves of Christ. They are, they are slaves of their own appetites. And what their own appetites are, that, that's their idol. Whatever they're seeking as foremost in their life other than God is the idol. Same is true for you. If there's anything in your heart, in your life, you want more than God that is your idol. And that's what Paul is saying is the problem here. They're not slaves of Christ, but of their own appetites, the things that they want. Just a real quick technical note of a Greek construction here because some of the Greek students had asked this. There's a. Um, uh, the, the word order in uh, verse 17 is really strange it goes uh, note those who divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned caused and the word translated "cause" there is poiontos which is a to do or to make that connects back to the word those uh you look at the, uh, those as accusative masculine plural, and so is the participle cause poyantas, accusative masculine plural. So those two connect. But the, the idea is that those who do who do that are they are causing, they are bringing about the dissension. It's always this kind of way. Look at Philippians chapter three, verse seventeen through nineteen. I think Philippians 3, 17 through 19 is a remarkable uh, cross-reference, comparative passage to what we're looking at in Romans 16. Because Paul starts out with something surprising in verse 17 of Philippians 3. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Here's the idea of noting those scoping them out, watching carefully those who are walking correctly. In the same way you want to note those who are following far, false doctrine, note those who are walking according to the faith, who, are, who teach right doctrine, who are living according to this word, and follow them like a pattern, Paul says. Now verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly or their appetites. The same kind of statement he made in Romans 16, 18, who do not serve Christ but their own appetites, whose God is their appetites. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. These are not just People who attend church with you or, or work with you say they're a Christian. These are enemies of the cross of Christ if they do not follow biblical doctrine. Whose God is their appetites, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. No wonder Paul says back in Romans 16, avoid them. They will not do you good, they will not bring glory to God. Avoid them. because they are not slaves to Christ, they are slaves of their own appetites. and finally, because they are destructive deceivers. They verse seventeen, they cause divisions and offenses in verse eighteen, For those who are such do not serve Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. They are destructive deceivers. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. And here is part of their fruit. They deceive the hearts of the simple. Now Paul recognizes that there are some very strong believers, slaves of Christ in the church at Rome. He is not saying that they necessarily will be deceived, but we must look out for our little brothers and sisters in Christ. The term he used to describe them is they are simple. Who will deceive the hearts of the, the simple? Also translated the naive for the unsuspecting. We need to guard our little brothers and sisters from heresy. Not every Christian book, or so called Christian book, has good doctrine. Some might have good motives and still have bad doctrine. I, I would encourage you to read books from this list or um, see me or Pastor Jeremy or see Zeb Carpenter or Jeb Brewer or any of our elders if you wonder about a book. We, we would, I would much rather help you discern whether a book will be good, helpful for you, then you just take a shot at something. Get stuff that is good, solid, that's going to inform your heart and soul and be true to the Word of God. Get that. Not every book, even in the Christian bookstore, teaches right doctrine. Not every Christian song teaches right doctrine. I am grateful for so many really good songwriters grateful for the songs that we sing here that we go through with a fine tooth comb to make sure that they are doctrinally correct but let me just give you a couple of examples there's a a song that uh, has been done before we haven't done it uh, since the first time we did it when I got here it's called (laughs) Above All beautiful song well-written, beautiful words and music and so forth. And it's, you know, uh, like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall, and as Christ was being crushed, what was he thinking about? He took the fall, and he thought of me above all. Really? Really? He didn't think of His glory above me. I was above His glory. I'm pretty special. (laughs) But that's not a biblical view. Now, it's not that He didn't have us in mind. I believe He did. I think even, in fact, Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. I think part of that joy is knowing that I was going to be in heaven forever. So He thought of me But he thought of his glory. I can't reach that high. It's way up there. See, he thought of his glory first. Above all. A song I heard last week on the radio. Title is Someone Worth Dying For. The chorus goes, I've got to believe, I've got to believe I am someone worth dying dying for the whole idea of the song is the worthiness of individuals and I understand the emotional pull of that people want to think that they are uh, they're worth something but when we come to Christ and we come to think about his sacrificial death for us he didn't look down and say Sherry, I think, I think you're worth dying for. So I'm, I'm going to do it. You're, you're worth it. Pam, not so sure you're worth it. <laughs> or Steve. But it's not like God does that, right? He's not saying, or oh, you're worth dying for, you're not worth dying for. What he says is, you're not worth dying for, Dave, you're not worth dying for. Linda, you are not worth dying for. Kendall, got bad news for you. It's true of all of us, right? None of us are worth dying for. He didn't die for us because we are worthy of anything. The great news of Christ is that He died for us when we were enemies of the cross. when we were doomed to hell, worthy of nothing, He died in our place. That means a whole lot more to me than thinking that I'm somehow worthy. That though I am worthless spiritually, He died for me. All the glory goes to God then. See, I don't share glory with Him. I was worthy and He He saw that, that's good. And so he died for me. And no, he gets all the glory, right? All the glory. Doctrine matters. It matters when you're listening to a song. It matters when you're reading a book. It matters when you're making decisions. It matters how you live. It affects everything that we do. Doctrine matters. One last thought to leave you with, and that is, in all matters, all that matters is God. In all matters, all that matters is God. Let's pray. Lord, we... Um, ask your forgiveness for taking this area of doctrine too lightly and not um, not immersing ourselves enough in it because, Lord, it is a study of you and your glory and your worthiness. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to love you more deeply want to live for you. And all those things come as we, through your word, understand you better. We, un- we know that it's by your Holy Spirit that you open our spiritual eyes to see, and we pray that you would do so. As we look to your word, or we, we seek to read good books that express doctrinal, biblical, doctrinal ideas that you would open our eyes to these things to be discerning of truth and error, to to know you and to live for you as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.